This morning we're going to be in the book of Luke. So if you take your Bibles and make your way to the book of Luke, Luke chapter number 13, we're going to read the first five verses of Luke chapter number 13. Luke chapter number 13, verses 1 through 5. There were present at that season some that told him, of course this is the Lord, told the Lord of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Of the, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The title of the message this morning is, Except Ye Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be in your house today. Lord, I ask that you'd uh, meet with us today. I pray that you, uh, by the Holy Spirit, would take the word that is spoken and apply it to hearts. Lord, uh, it is the testimony of every person here this morning that we are saved by the grace of God. We know you. I pray that you would search our hearts, Lord, that we might know uh, what your word says about this very important doctrine of repentance. Lord, this is something that is by and large neglected in pulpits today and also in the lives of even believers. And yet I pray that you'd give us fresh insight from your word using the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we realize that except we repent, we perish spiritually. And I pray that in all things, Lord, you would receive honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Except ye repent. Wallet Hub, I don't know if you're familiar with Wallet Hub. Wallet Hub released a report last month on the most sinful uh, states in the United States for this coming year, 2022. They based their report on seven categories. I'll give you these seven categories. Anger and hatred, jealousy, excesses and vices, greed, lust, vanity, and laziness. Now, you're probably not surprised by the state that is regarded as the most sinful state. What state would you say? It's Nevada. Nevada. You got Las Vegas and you got Reno in Nevada, right? But California comes in a close second, followed by Texas, thirdly, fourthly, Florida, and lastly, sorry, Cody, Louisiana. Louisiana comes in fifth. Now, the least, the least most sinful states uh, were Iowa. South Dakota, Vermont, Wyoming, and Idaho. Now, there are those that would that would uh, be ones that Jesus was addressing in our in our text verses that might think that those uh, residents of the most sinful states, and again, this is by man's evaluation, uh, would, would perhaps deserve a harsher punishment from the Lord than, say, those that lived in Iowa or South Dakota or Vermont. Well, when you think about that, it's really a ridiculous and ludicrous 
way to think of things. And yet, there were those in Luke chapter number 13 that came to this exact conclusion. And of course, Jesus uses this occasion in Luke chapter number 13 to touch on a much more important subject, and that is the subject of repentance. Now, you and I would certainly agree that today in our nation, the message of salvation has by and large been cheapened as it is, even if it is, preached from pulpits today. The modern church seems more interested in gaining numbers and being popular than preaching the truth of the Lord's Word. Easy believism is the message of the day. Invite Jesus into your heart, give Jesus your heart, and that assures you of an eternity in heaven. Sin is rarely mentioned. Self-esteem and a feel-good message are what is prevalent. Why do you think you see thousands and thousands in places like Houston where Joel Osteen preaches? Because of all of what I've described, repentance is, for the most part, neglected in modern day preaching. Jesus is preaching. His preaching in Luke chapter number 13 would be unpopular today. It would be unwelcome in many pulpits today. In addressing this insinuation by those that were present, by the way, I think if you look back in context, you look at chapter number 12 and the, uh, the uh, continuation into chapter number 13, I, I believe that these are probably Pharisees and Sadducees, religious folks that had addressed the Lord uh, with this insinuation. The insinuation by judgmental folks is that well, these people were more sinful than others, and therefore that's why this, this tragedy or this tragedy fell upon them. But Jesus points out what is really important. He says, these people were not more sinful than others. No, that's not the case. And then he says, except ye repent. Except all of you that are hearing my voice, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. So, a soul-searching question today is, have you experienced true biblical repentance? This morning, I want us to note three facets of biblical repentance. Keeping in mind Jesus' teaching that except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Here are the three facets, and we'll look at them individually. First of all, Jesus points out the requirement for repentance. Secondly, you and I need to understand the reality of repentance. That repentance is, in fact, real and is experienced by children of God. And then, thirdly, we want to consider what constitutes repentance, or the recipe for repentance. This morning we're talking about Jesus' words to those that were judgmental, and He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So notice, first of all, the requirement, the requirement for repentance. Notice those who Jesus called to repentance. Jesus is issuing a call here in our text verses in Luke chapter number 13, verses 1 through 5. 
in Jesus' calling to repentance, those that implied that the Galileans were deserving of what had happened to them. Now notice again, Luke chapter 13, verse number 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, the assumption here, or the belief is, that there was an insurrection brought about by a Jewish man by the name of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, by a Jewish man uh, who was revolting at the Roman rule. And when this was found out, his insurrection was found out, Pilate had him killed and all of his followers killed, and their blood mingled with the sacrifices that were taking place at the great feast at that day. That's, that's what is believed is the context of verse number 1. And they are questioning, they are questioning Jesus about this. Was this a right thing for Pilate to do? Were these men deserving of what Pilate had done? And notice that the Lord did not answer their question, but he focuses on this more important topic, the topic of repentance. In verse number 2, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because, because they suffered such things. In other words, because they met this fate and they suffered such a cruel and terrible death, did that mean that they were somehow more sinful than other people? And of course, the conclusion that we often make is, well, you know, look what happened to that person over there. They must have been leading a sinful life. And we make that conclusion. And Jesus is saying that your focus is all wrong. You think that because these Galileans met this cruel and horrible death, that it was because they were more sinful than other people. Um, you know, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about this study, uh, this report that Wallet Hub released the most sinful uh, states in the, uh, in the United States. Well, I remember back in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans. And look, man, most of us would agree that New Orleans is by and large a sinful city, right? I mean, you know, if you've been there, you, you know you've been in the French Quarter, you've, you know a little bit about, about the sinfulness of that city. So then can we conclude that, wow, you know, that New Orleans was such a sinful city that God was God was bringing that hurricane on New Orleans because of their sinfulness, and a lot of us would jump to that conclusion. We have no basis for concluding that. You don't know why God brought the hurricane, allowed the hurricane uh, to to level New Orleans the way that it did. But we jump to these conclusions, and we suppose that suffering is due to sin, and we suppose that. Well, you know, these people are going to get their just desserts because of what they've done. But, it doesn't apply to me. I'm not that sinful. I would never be like those ones that had their blood mingled with the sacrifice. You see, I'm better than that. And Jesus is addressing this problem with their thinking. He's saying that you think that these are sinful and they deserve to be punished. And you, and I believe he's talking to the Pharisees, I really do, you're, you're religious and you think that somehow you're better than these people. And I'm telling you this, except you repent. Except you repent. 
ye shall all likewise perish. We know this because look at the two questions, these two piercing questions that the Lord asks in verse 2 and also in verse number 4. He says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. And in verse number 4, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Now it's interesting because the tower in Siloam is, or, or uh, the, uh, yes, the tower that fell in them in Siloam was by a pool in Siloam. And you'll find this in John chapter number 9. And, and, and there was a pool that was in Siloam. And it was believed that there were people that were, that were purifying themselves and were not involved in any sinful activity whatsoever and would be referred to as what we might call righteous people. And they were purifying themselves in this pool when this tower fell and slew them. And so Jesus said, well, now wait a minute. Yeah, you're saying that the Galileans and the insurrection that was led by Judas, that they're deserving of this. But what about these people over here that were supposedly righteous and were only involved in purifying themselves? Were they as sinful as these? And he's asking these questions to prove the point that their focus is on the wrong thing. Except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. The Lord directs them to consider their own condition. They were no better than those that were violently killed. Who does Jesus address the topic of repentance to? Listen to this in Luke chapter 5, in verse number 31 and 32. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So, the folks that were pointing to these that had this awful fate, and you understand how I use the word fate, that they met this awful end, Jesus is saying that, you, you know, you're missing the point. You don't even think that you need repentance because you are better than them. But Jesus says, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And then in verse 32 of Luke 5, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who did the who did the word of God, who does the word of God say are called to repentance? In Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30, in the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So whether you're better than those that suffered this horrible death in your own eyes, or whether you're as righteous as the ones that died in the pool at Siloam when the tower fell upon them, regardless of that, all men stand in need of repentance. Now, we see those Jesus called to repentance. And that concludes us to, lead, to, to, to see that Repentance must be in the content of our preaching. Repentance is such an important Bible doctrine that it is found in various forms 111 times in Scripture, 46 times in the Old Testament, 65 times in the New Testament. Repentance was a prominent topic of Jesus' preaching. We see it here in Luke chapter number 13. But how about this in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15? In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the Bible reads, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In verse 15, And saying, The time is fulfilled, 
and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus' public ministry and His public preaching was marked by the content of repentance in His messages. In fact, we know that Jesus placed such an important emphasis on repentance because in Luke chapter number 15, that whole chapter, those parables that that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter number 15 about the woman losing her coin and the sheep that goes astray and then the parable of the prodigal son, they are all about the subject of repentance. What did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. Peter preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. The church's commission is to preach repentance. Listen to this in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Uh, This is Jesus appearing to them after He has risen from the dead, them being the church, the apostles, uh, before His ascension. In Luke 24, verse 46, And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now what is that? That's the gospel, right? We preach the gospel. But then listen to verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Folks, you and I have to understand that if we are preaching a salvation message that does not involve the doctrine of repentance, if you've never heard of repentance, if you somehow think that you're saved without ever having repented of your sins, you have been deceived. Jesus Christ places emphasis on the doctrine of repentance. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe we all know who Bonhoeffer was uh, during the, uh, uh, the uh, Holocaust and so forth. Bonhoeffer, uh, man, some quotes that he left us, that uh, wonderful, wonderful seeds of thought, but Bonhoeffer said this, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he touches on an important topic, you know, what, almost a hundred years ago now, And it's still prevalent today. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Folks, you and I need to be called to attention today. We need to investigate our own lives and we really need to ask whether or not we have experienced true biblical repentance. So we see here in verses 1 through 5, the first facet of biblical repentance, there is a requirement for repentance. But notice the second facet we see, and that deals with the reality of repentance. Have we experienced true biblical repentance? Now we we must investigate that and examine ourselves, and we must ask the question, because there is, first of all, a counterfeit repentance. Do you know that everything that is right and spiritual that has been given to man from God, the devil has a counterfeit. There is a counterfeit repentance. Uh, theologically, this is defined, it's de- uh, named and defined and described as what we would call legal repentance. 
This is a counterfeit repentance. This repentance comes, first of all, because you got caught. Because you got caught. If your repentance consists of the fact that you got caught in committing sin, and that's why you repented, folks, you need to check up on your repentance. This is typified by Judas in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. And let's, let's just quickly turn over there so that we can gain an understanding of the type of repentance that we're talking about. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. Notice Judas, Judas Iscariot. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, do you get that? When he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now there are folks that believe that Judas Iscariot was actually saved. And they base that, I believe, upon this, this passage of Scripture that they would say, see, this proves that Judas Iscariot actually experienced biblical repentance. I don't think it teaches that. I don't think it reveals that. I think it shows us that Judas Iscariot had a legal repentance and he experienced some regret because he got caught. The key verse is verse number 3 where it says, when he saw he was condemned. And when the Bible says that he repented himself, the word repent there occurs six times in the New Testament, and it means to care afterwards or literally to regret. It is never used as it relates to salvation. You know, there are criminals every day that regret that they got caught. Now, they don't regret that they committed the crime, they just regret that they got caught. And you see them, and man, I deal with these types of people all the time. You know, and you read a, you read a report and you watch DVDs and, and you, you look at the case of what this, what this offender did to this innocent victim and then you get them in the orange jumpsuit, jumpsuit and shackles and cuffs before the judge. It's not uncommon for them to even start crying. And they're not crying for the victim. They're crying because they got caught and now they got to face the music. And you know how I know that that's true? Because there have been a number of them just since I've been working in my office that have reoffended after they got out. They reoffended. And so don't tell me that they're really sorry that they committed the crime. They're sorry that they got caught. By the way, sin is not a result of true biblical repentance. What did Judas do when he, when he, when he uh, couldn't uh, make amends with those that he had betrayed the Lord to? He went out and he hanged himself. Sin is not a result of repentance. Righteousness is a, a result of repentance. And so there's a counterfeit repentance because you got caught, and yes, because of the consequences of it. Folks don't get upset that they committed the crime. They get upset because they're caught, and they get upset because of the consequences. Have you ever seen an interview with a true psychopath? There's a show on uh, one of the uh, channels that uh, deals specifically with crimes. It's called Signs of a Psychopath. And they take, they take true uh, crimes and uh, offenders and convicts, and they just show the interviews with them. 
And it's amazing to get an insight into how a psychopath works. A psychopath has no empathy for anyone else. They're narcissistic. They only care about themselves. And it's amazing when they'll start weeping and talking about, Oh, I've ruined my life. Oh, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life in jail. It's all about them. And they're only upset because of the consequences. Do not be deceived. This is not biblical repentance. If you are if you're only sorry that you got caught in your sin and you have to suffer the consequences of your sin, that's not true biblical repentance. By the way, the person in Scripture that typifies legal repentance as it relates to the consequences of sin is Esau. And you can read about Esau in Hebrews chapter 12 and also in Genesis chapter number 27 where he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, for a bowl of beans. And he wasn't upset that he sold the birthright. He was upset because he lost the benefits of having the birthright. And so, by the way, don't, don't ever look at Esau and say, well, see, Esau, Esau tried to repent. You know, he sought it with tears, as we're told. In fact, let's just quickly look at that so you understand what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews chapter number 12, verses 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Watch here. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. This is not saying that Esau really wanted to repent before God, but God wouldn't let him. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that Esau was merely upset that he lost the benefits of having the birthright and he could not get that birthright back because he had already sold it. That's what that means. And so, folks, there is the reality of repentance. There is a counterfeit repentance and you and I should investigate whether or not we've experienced this counterfeit repentance or secondly, whether or not we've experienced correct repentance. And correct repentance is defined and described as evangelical repentance. So you have the counterfeit repentance, which is legal repentance. That's Judas and Esau typifying that repentance. But then you have a correct repentance, which is described and uh, delineated as evangelical repentance. We said it's delineated. Now you know, and, and again, I don't want to get too hot and heavy into the doctrinal aspect of the message today, uh, getting down into the weeds, but it is necessary that we mention a few theological terms. We talked many times recently about the new birth. The new birth is referred to as regeneration. The new birth, as you hopefully you know by now, if you weren't uh, daydreaming or sleeping or thinking about something else during the preaching, you know that there are two sides to the new birth. There are two sides to regeneration. There is a divine side, which is called quickening. It's the spirit that quickened, right? There is a human side, and what is that human side called? It's called conversion. So the new birth consists of two sides, two aspects, if you will. The divine side, which is called quickening. The human side, which is conversion. Now, conversion also consists of two inseparable elements. What are those elements? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. In Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21, the Bible reads, 
testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm here today to say that there is the requirement for repentance. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. There's the reality of repentance. There is the reality that unless you have repented of your sins and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, there is no assurance in Scripture that you've been saved by the grace of God. I don't say that to scare people. I don't say that to call people to doubt their own salvation. But, folks, we need to examine ourselves, see whether or not we're in the faith. See whether or not what we've experienced is what the Bible describes as true salvation. The new birth consists of conversion, which consists of the inseparable graces of repentance and faith. Now, we've talked about evangelical repentance briefly and delineating repentance, but let, now let's define repentance. We've talked a lot about repentance up to this point, but what is repentance? Listen to Strong's definition in his Systematic Theology book. This is A.H. Strong, Augustus H. Strong. He defines repentance this way. Repentance is that voluntary change of mind in the sinner in which he turns from sin. It involves a change of view, a change of feeling, and a change of purpose. So what is repentance? Repentance is literally a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It means that you are walking this way and something causes you to change your mind. That's the divine side of the new birth, right? And, and, and you, are, you are led to say, man, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need, to, I need to change course. And what do you do? You turn around you go in the other direction. It's a 180 degree change, not a 360 degree change, by the way. Some people, it's a 360 degree. Well, you're back where you started. Okay, It's a 180 degree change. We become new creatures in Christ. We have a new governing disposition, the new birth. And because of that new governing disposition, we have a change of mind that results in a change of heart. And, we are, and, and, and ultimately, it's a change of direction. That's repentance. Repentance is not reformation. It's not just stopping your sin. Repentance is not just religion. We talked about the differences of these in a message recently. And I don't want to go back and go through all of those again. But you understand that we're talking about true evangelical repentance. So we talked about the requirement for repentance. That's the first facet. The second facet, the reality of repentance. But thirdly now, we want to look at this third facet, the recipe for repentance. How do I know if what I experienced was true evangelical biblical repentance? Now, I've told you this before. Um, you know I was a church member for a number of years. And the Lord used that tract that Brother Keener wrote. We got it right outside in the foyer uh, out there. How can I be saved and be sure? a question. Brother Keener wrote that track in response to somebody who had written him and asked him that question. And you know what Brother Keener touched on in that track? True biblical repentance. And as Brother Keener described what true Bible repentance is, I realized I had never experienced that. 
I had never experienced true Bible repentance. What I had experienced was a reformation. I, I was committing this sin and these multitudes of sins, and so you know what? I'm going to stop those things. And I'm going to start doing these things. That's just a reformation. There is so much left out as it relates to true Bible repentance. Now, how do I know I have repented of my sins and it meets the biblical description? Well, this requires us to look at the ingredients of evangelical repentance. The ingredients. And there are three ingredients. All three ingredients deal with aspects of our heart and who we are as human beings. The first the first ingredient again should not be a surprise to you we looked at this when we talked about and studied uh, on Sunday afternoons on getting to know the Holy Spirit we studied this particularly as a work of the Holy Spirit the first ingredient is conviction conviction and you know what conviction is it is sin acknowledged it is sin acknowledged it is a recognition of sin intellectually now, there are a lot of people that have a recognition of sin intellectually, and that's why it takes all of these ingredients to make up true Bible repentance. We're going to have lunch here in just a few moments. I know for a fact that yesterday Darlene was busy making desserts. And I know for a fact that every day she's busy baking and you know making all these man, fantastic desserts that you know, I'm, I'm reaching my breaking point. You know, I'm going to come in here on a Wednesday night and I'm going to be like an Oompa Loompa because uh, I couldn't take it anymore and I ate all of the cookies, okay? By the way, I'll be black and blue as well because she works very hard on these orders. But but here's the, here's the point I'm making. You can't say, well, you know, I can make these treats with just one ingredient. It takes more than one ingredient. And if you don't, like, okay, dear, you made, did you make something with pecans today? Okay. You can't have something with pecans, a, a treat or a dessert with pecans without pecans. Or at least the taste of pecans. Like, it, it has to taste, you don't have, hey, here's a pecan pie, and, and you take a bite of it and it's blueberry pie. It's not pecan pie. You have to have all of the ingredients that make up what it is that you're trying to make. Well, guess what? It's the same way with repentance. Some people think that repentance is only an acknowledgement of sin. But the problem is that there are a lot of people that have an intellectual knowledge of sin. Yes, I am a sinner. But so are you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So here I am right back in Luke chapter 13. I'm better than those folks because I haven't sinned as much as those folks. Even though, yes, I'm a sinner. For all have sinned. They come short of the glory. There's, there's an intellectual understanding, but that's not all that there is. Now, you got to have an intellectual understanding. you got to have an intellectual understanding. you got to have a recognition of sin intellectually because what this does is this leads to a change of view. Wow. I'm not right with God. And I'm not right with God, because not because I commit this sin, that's a part of it, but I commit this sin because I am a sinner. I'm not right with God. That causes concern. 
I'm judged by God. Not by these that were saying, oh, look at the Galileans. They're more sinful than everyone else. No, our concern should be what God thinks. Jesus says, you think they're sinners above everyone else, but you're wrong, except ye repent. And so we are led to this conclusion that we have to see ourselves as God sees us. The first ingredient of evangelical repentance is conviction. It is an acknowledgement of sin, a recognition of sin intellectually. Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Psalm 51 verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin ever before me. David, in his sinful activity, did not try to make it as though, well, it wasn't really that bad what he did with Bathsheba. He says, no, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He was convicted of his sin. He acknowledged his sin. He didn't try to explain it away. So there's the first ingredient, conviction. Here's the second ingredient, contrition. Contrition. Conviction and contrition. Contrition is sin abhorred. Conviction is an intellectual acknowledgement of sin. It is sin acknowledged. Contrition is sin abhorred. It is a regret of sin emotionally. Where conviction deals with our intellect, contrition deals with our feelings and our emotions. It is that we abhor sin. It is a regret of sin emotionally. Have you ever been, and I, I pray to God this is the case, have you ever been brought to a place, I'm talking about as a believer, certainly this happens when the Lord saves, but you understand repentance is not something that is only applied in the lives of unbelievers. I just read you these verses with David in Psalm 51, verse 3. But do you ever, have you ever been brought to the point where you've sinned against God? And you literally want to smite your breast like the publican because you said, God, I, I failed you again, God. I've sinned against you. God, I loathe my flesh. It is an abhorrence of sin. It, it, it is a, a view that we are, we are contrite towards God. It is to feel compunction. Compunction. What is compunction? It is pain of sorrow. Here's the difference between reformation and true Bible repentance. Do you know that in true Bible repentance you have contrition and you feel compunction towards God? You are sorry to God that you have offended God. Somebody who has never experienced true repentance has no idea what that is like. To know that you have offended a righteous and a holy God. Some people, their only view of salvation is, well, I'm saved, I don't have to go to hell. That's just a fear of the consequences. But true Bible repentance is, I'm sorry because I have offended God. God did not do anything for Him to merit me transgressing His law. God has done everything right and good for me. He has given me life. He has allowed me to be born in this country. And I have offended a righteous and a holy God. I have broken His commandments. I have a regret for having offended God. And because of that, I have incurred His wrath. God didn't do anything wrong. It's all me. Now watch. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7. We couldn't deal with the topic of repentance except we look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 7 and you get an idea about contrition and compunction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 through 11. Now I rejoice, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. The sorrow is not repentance. The sorrow leads to repentance. It is an ingredient of repentance. He says, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us or nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, who can you think of that we've already talked about that had the sorrow of the world? Judas and Esau. Fear of getting, or regret that they got caught, regret because of the consequences of what they did, but no regret of sin towards God, no compunction or contrition towards God, Paul is saying that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation that is never taken away. It's not undone. You never say... Have you ever met a child of God after they were saved that said, you know, man, I wish I weren't saved? Would that not be an odd thing? Have you ever met a child of God that said, man, you know, that, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. You'll never meet one who's been truly saved. It's not to be repented of. And so Paul says in verse number 10 that there's godly sorrow that we would refer to as contrition and compunction. And then look at verse 11. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. And all these things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now you understand the matter he's talking about is the matter of the sin of this man that had committed this horrible sexual sin in the church at Corinth and needed to be disciplined and the church did not discipline him. And, and Paul is saying that, you know, you, you guys have been brought to repentance. Paul wrote them a, a rather, rather severe letter. Oh, shame on Paul. He's too harsh. He wrote him a rather severe letter because the situation demanded it and warranted it. And you know what God did with that severe letter? He wrought repentance. And part of repentance is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow works. Repentance. In Psalm 38, verse 18, the Bible says, For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. The, the, uh, the uh, prodigal son, when he came to himself in Luke 15, verse 21, the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. I hope that if you're saved, you pray that prayer periodically. I hope that you are brought to a recognition of your sin and a compunction of your sin such that you abhor your sin and you cry out to God. Now we know that we're children of God adopted into His family. There's no way that we could ever be kicked out and yet we say, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's a righteous prayer. Luke 18 verse 13, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the ingredients of repentance, conviction, sin acknowledged, contrition, sin abhorred, and then thirdly, conversion, sin abandoned. 
sin abandoned. This is the response of our will. So we have the, the we have a recognition in our intellect. We have a regret of sin emotionally, and then we have and a response of the will, which is a change of purpose. We just read this in verse number 11. Now after the verse number 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, after the Corinthian members were brought to repentance, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. And then what happened in verse number 11? He says, yea, uh, I'll read the whole verse. For behold this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing <coughs> excuse me, of yourselves. <coughs> Sorry. Yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. These were things that were wrought in them. And so sin abandoned is a part of repentance. Somebody that says, Well, you know, I, I repented of my sins and trusted Christ. And they've never they've never forsaken any of their sinful behavior. There's never been any change in their life whatsoever. They don't darken the doorstep of God's house. They don't read God's word. They don't pray. They, they're leading the same lifestyle that they led before. But oh, I said a sinner's prayer. They are deceived. And shame on those who deceive them. Repentance involves conviction. An acknowledgement of our sin. Contrition. An abhorrence of our sin. And yes, conversion and abandonment of our sin. This does not mean that we're perfect. You will have besetting sins that you struggle with. Day in and day out. And that flesh and spirit fight against each other. You won't be perfect. But the difference is that you won't enjoy it. You will not enjoy it. There is an inward abandonment leading to an outward change. What did John the Baptist say to those that came to his baptism? He said, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Somebody who's repented, you're going to see a change in their life. They're not going to be the same person. That change might be a drastic change. It might be a gradual change, but there's going to be a change. You might, you might, you might not be able to see a change. As, let, let's say somebody who, in my situation, a church member who's saved by the grace of God. I wasn't living an outwardly God, ungodly lifestyle. You might not see a drastic change. But there's going to be a change in that person. That, that person is going to recognize the change. There's going to be a change. Now those are the ingredients of evangelical repentance. And secondly and lastly, there must be the impartation of evangelical repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. It, it's recorded in Acts chapter 5 and in Acts chapter number 11. In 2 Timothy chapter number 2, it's a gift of God. And so we, we come full circle. Who receives the praise and honor and glory? God and God alone. It's not like we say, oh, well, you know what? I'm better than the Galileans because I repented and they didn't. No. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Thank you, Lord, for granting to me repentance and faith. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is also imparted. Faith is not the topic of our discourse this morning. But these are gifts of God. They are inseparable graces wrought by the Holy Spirit. These folks approached Jesus and they, they thought that they were going to trip Him up. Oh, see these Galileans? Bunch of sinning dogs. See those people that live out in Las Vegas? Man, you can't be a Christian and live in Las Vegas. Well, it'd probably be hard. 
But I've been to church in Las Vegas. I know there's some godly people that live out there, work at Nellis Air Force Base and other places like that. You can't be a Christian and live in Las Vegas. Oh, okay. Have you repented of your sins? <laughs> Let's ask a deeper question, oh ye judgmental Christian. Oh, I'm better than those that live in New Orleans. I'm better than those that live in Chicago or San Francisco or Houston. You know, all these places... And Jesus says, you guys, you have the wrong focus. You're looking on outward things. Except ye repent. Ye shall all likewise perish. There's a requirement for repentance. The reality of repentance. And the recipe for repentance. Have you repented? Let's pray.